Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Good morning and welcome to CEO Exclusive, where we get emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. I'm Soyini Koch. And in the survey that we conducted of some of the CEOs who are listening and have been on our show, we found that 25% of you mid-market CEOs are thinking about funding issues or raising capital. So that's what we're going to talk about today with Roger Rake of Stratali and Barry Etra of The Raise Forum, which is a program that's been sponsored by Emory University to help companies raise between $1 to $5 million in capital. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you, Sir Amy. What are your recommendations for CEOs who are looking to raise money right now? I think the biggest issue is to be fully prepared. Be prepared with an executive summary and be prepared for a management team that brings with it the expertise that you need in order to successfully convince a lender or an investor to put money into your business. And what's the, what's the market now, like right now in terms of appetite for investors to invest in companies? It's a challenge. Um, being vetted in the market is a major leg up for most business owners. If you, if you have revenue, uh, investors and funders feel a lot better about lending you money or investing in your business. So that market vetting is really a critical element. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to raise money today, um, particularly in, in Atlanta. It's not easy to find money. And most of our listeners are going to be companies that already have like five to $100 million in revenue. That's kind of who, who our target listeners are. So what about the market for them versus companies that may be a little bit younger? It's, it's much better for that kind of company. Um, EBITDA is a major measuring stick for those companies. And their, their level of forward planning and growth planning is a critical element for many of the investor uh, community. Well, you know, it's funny because I love the word plan, as you well know. Um, you're a fellow strategist as I am. So yes. what what are they looking for in those plans when when they're looking at a company that may have, let's say, $10 million in revenue, two, $2 million EBITDA or something like that? They're, they're looking for a growth plan that involves uh, a pretty high level of understanding of the competitive marketplace and how they're going to be different. They also uh, typically are in, encouraged by having a detailed analysis of where the market is, the market trends are going, and how they're going to fit into the market five years from now. That's kind of a perennial issue. You know, companies it is. need to know how they stand, where they stand in the market, where the market positioning is, and have a sense of where the market's growing. Is, has anything changed, uh, especially since the Great Recession? Well, I think it's harder. Barry? I was going to hop on something you said depending on where you are in the country, it's different. So in California, it's much more about big ideas and big possibilities. Here, it's much more, can you build a great $10 million business? Do you have those parameters? And David Cummings wrote a great blog about nine months ago talking about how people look at metrics and early on and what they have to hit. He said, forget it, get sales, which is exactly what Roger is saying. But and, EBITDA and sales are not the same thing. No, so but obviously with sales comes EBITDA. Sometimes. And once you, I mean, you can't even get to private equity, which is where the big pool of money is until you're at 10 million in sales and 2 million in EBITDA. They don't really want to talk to you before that. So below that is where it's very iffy. There've got to be ways to make it better. 
Mm. So you were telling us what needs to be in the in the in the plan and whether or not it's changed since the recession. There's a big difference between growing an a uh, infant business and growing a business that's achieved a significant revenue stream. So we're teen- we're talking teenagers here. Teenagers, great, great analogy. It's it's a case where you have to have more partners, more strategic partners that are helping you with a better view on where the world is going. You have to have a network of opportunities. You have to have a forward-looking product uh, family development plan. You need to have, you have to have a key set of strategies that are going to carry you for the next few years. Mm-hmm. So let's dig in a little bit because one of the things that I find in working with my clients is when they when I ask them about their competitive advantage, which is a key thing that, that you just mentioned, Roger, they say, well, we provide great service or, you know, maybe we have a little bit better pricing, but nothing really compelling. And it seems like there is a real struggle in articulating what it is that really makes them special and ha- and helps them codify their market position. In your mind, Barry and Roger, what defines a competitive advantage and how, let's say there's a CEO listening to this now and they think, you know, well, I, you know, my customers really like me or I have good relationships or you know, we provide great customer service, all great, but very vague. How do you counsel them to kind of go a couple levels deeper and get to what that competitive advantage might be? One of the first things I heard when I started playing around in this world was from Sig Mosley, who's one of the, is the grandfather of early stage investment in Atlanta. And he said exactly what you're talking about. You have to differentiate your business without mentioning price or service or quality. That's the real differentiator. That's always a little bit hard. That's why companies need people like you, because that's, companies get too close to their companies. Always. CEOs, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Anybody really working in the company gets too close to it. Got it. And and you're right. Everyone claims to have better customer service and better quality than their competitors. It's it's just noise now. So it has to be a significant uh, differentiator. And the way I measure it is how do your customers measure your differentiation factor? I ask my client customers companies to go survey their customers and see why are we different than our competitors. And if the answers come back, milk toast kind of answers, you've got a big problem. You've got to go change what you're doing and your marketing campaign is not doing your job. And the trick is in some ways, you can't provide more service than the market is willing to pay for. And you have to determine when not only most companies look at, th- look at saying, hey, we're doing this and we're the best thing at this. Well, does the market need it? Uh, one of the guys I work with often is always talking about product market fit. And that is his major criterion is end all and be all. Well, I think another element that to talk about and to discuss is the element of providing greater value to your customers, not in terms of necessarily better products, but in terms of market feedback, market trends, if you can help your customers with a better view of where the world is going and what kind of needs are developing in the market, you're providing tangible benefit to your customers that you're not getting paid for, but really increases your value. Mm-hmm. In last week's show, we talked a little bit about that and how CEOs need to, however difficult it is, to stay ahead of the curve and anticipate trends. 
How would you recommend that somebody listening to this who's already overwhelmed by all the 50,000 things they need to do how, and they don't have a big R&D team or a big strategy team to go out and track those trends, how do you counsel them to, to do that? To me, the first step is, is you engage with market analysts. People like Gartner Group and others can be a tremendous source of information. But additionally, there's the stock market analysts. The big investment firms have analysts that are targeting specific marketplaces, and they have tremendous insight into the market trends and how things are changing over time. So simply doing a good job of engaging with those people on an occasional basis will help you immensely in strategic planning. Mm. Tell us how your perspective on how investors value strategic planning, because uh, we talked about this before, Roger, and I've mentioned it a couple of times on the show. A lot of CEOs don't really aren't very disciplined about doing doing strategic plan. They're just not disciplined. You know, I think worse, they just don't do it right. about not being they just don't do it. So what's what how do investors think about it? I think you have to get one of the things that people don't do when they write into executive summaries or when they talk to investors, they don't think the way the investor thinks. The way an investor thinks is they want to know, have you done your homework? Do you know where, where you're going? What have you done to get there? That, that shows the kind of readiness they want before they're going to invest in you. Well, I think that that's, I think that CEOs right. kind of know that, but much like yeah. people studying for an exam, you know, they'll cram at the last minute and they don't do the, so I need to raise money this year. I need to raise money next year. I'm finally going to get around to doing that business plan or that strategic plan because I need to raise the money. Do you think that that's transparent? Do you think that investors can tell the difference when they're cramming versus whether or not they've actually had the discipline of doing the strategic planning all along? Roger's laughing. It's a great question because I try. You're you're assuming that the investors are highly knowledgeable, and they aren't always highly knowledgeable so in this marketplace. Work. So, cramming, so works. cramming works. I did it. I did a lot. <laughs> it it's uh, but it, the the basics of it are. Are you convincing to an investor that you really know what's going on? And you have to have the details. Um, arm waving and window dressing doesn't work if they really are knowledgeable and are willing to dig into what you're telling them. Barry, you were going to make a comment? I was going to say that, you know, yes, cramming works. And in general, if the investor doesn't know your industry, you're getting to the point you need them to get to, at least in their own minds. If the investor does know the industry... Now you're in a totally different spot because if you can impress an investor with more information about what he knows already, that's like a light bulb going off. And I think that makes a big difference. I've seen it happen several times uh, in some of the things we do. Somebody will come up and say, here's where we're going. Here's what we're doing right now. But our real target is this. And everybody else sits up and goes, well, that's right. And supportive to that is a long list of strategic partners that you have a close relationship with, that gives you tremendous credibility for the, for the opinions you're expressing at that point. On the other hand, it can get you in trouble because people look at you and say, well, you have a relationship with GE and with this and with that. Why aren't you much bigger? <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny world. If you think about investors only trying to figure out a way to say no, <laughs> which is really how it works in many cases. That's the kind of mindset you have to be it's in. True. You have to eliminate their ability to say no. Mm -hmm. 
folks listening, we're talking to Barry Etra of Race Forum and Roger Rake of Stratali about raising funds in today's market. And from what I heard in the first part of our conversation, key takeaways are uh, in terms of competitive advantage, if you really want a great competitive advantage or to be able to articulate it, you should be able to talk about how you differentiate yourself without mentioning price, quality, or service, which is great. Um, and yes, the other key takeaway, which I don't like, which is they said that cramming does work. So yes, if you're thinking about raising money and you haven't done your strategic plan or business plan for the past five years, now is the time and you can still uh, still be really effective with it. Um, so you mentioned strategic alliances and part- partnerships, Roger. For a tweener, a, a teenage t- teenage sized business, what should they be looking for in terms of strategic partnerships? And how do they eva- evaluate the value of them to their business going forward? And what strategic partnerships should they be looking for? I focus on that topic a lot. Which is why businesses. What, the, um, the, uh, the partnerships need to be real partnerships. Um, well, what's that? It, it's a formal partnership with an agreement to work together. It's a commitment by all of your management team to meet with the management team of the other party. It's a commitment for it to be a win-win relationship, not a I win and you lose relationship. And it needs to be relatively formal where you have day-long meetings with these other businesses to talk about what what is my business doing? How do we see the market evolving? And you tell me the same thing on your side. And then you have the benefit of potential additional business development activities. But greater than that is the market feedback you get from your strategic partner. When I worked as an executive with National Semiconductor, we partnered with every major computer manufacturer in the world. And of course, there were differing opinions, and we had better relationships with some than others. But the fact was, we had tremendous market data coming to us and tremendous divergent opinions of where the market was going. Mm-hmm. Are, are most of these partnerships that you would be urging the CEOs to go after all business development related, all like revenue shares or sales on the sales side? Um, no, it's it's more typically on the vendor side, but the, in both cases, on the uh, as a cli- potential client or a current client being a partner or as a vendor, it's it's a tremendously powerful process to establish formal relationships. And I think from the standpoint of clients buying clients, it's a better way to sell than to go in and develop a partnership with with a potential client than it is to simply offer your. 20 or 30 or 100 products, uh, partner with them rather than sell to them. Hmm. I'm not exactly sure why, what the difference is. I mean, the economics might be slightly better, but you give up control and that, you know, it's, it's riskier. The, the difference is, is you're sharing your vision of where the world is going and you're sharing some of your own internal strategies on how you're going to grow your business. You have to be open in a partnership like that to encourage the other party to be open as well. And that's where you'll you'll learn the nuggets of what they think is changing and what's going to be important in the future. Barry, did you want to weigh in? I think these partnerships will get you to places that you can't get to on your own. And that's the, the, one of the real values that I see, the, the ones who really get to the people. It's fact, that's UPS's strategy in a way. UPS is investing in early stage companies that might be in their path somewhere down the road, which is a very smart way to do it. 
they, they see technologies that they may have to adopt and they cover themselves by actually creating a strategic partnership from the other side. The other thing is certainly on the early stage, when you have companies that don't have a lot of marketing budget, they can get the benefit of a bigger partner sales force to really multiply their reach without having to spend uh, a lot of money to hire additional people. Mm -hmm. I think another advantage is to prevent you from recreating the wheel. If you have good strategic partnerships, it'll help you not invent something that's already been invented. Right. Let's turn the conversation a little bit to uh, exit strategy. One of the things that investors really like, of course, want to know is how they're going to get their money back. But yet, and especially in this mid-market CEO dynamic, one of the things that will happen is I'll ask CEOs about their exit strategy and they'll kind of look at me, especially if things are going well, right? They'll look at me and be like, exit strategy, what exit strategy? What is your thought on how even like a CEO who's doing really well can keep the exit strategy in the in the picture? Because, you know, they're growing 10 or 100 percent. We've had um, a thousand percent, et cetera. We've had a number of uh, companies here that are on the Inc. 500. So yeah, they're not really thinking about leaving their business right now. It's very difficult. If, if their growth rate is really substantial, it is very difficult to get them to think about that. The approach that I take with them is to, is to consider growth through acquisition as well. If they're really growing like gangbusters, investors are looking to help them grow even more. And so growth through acquisition is a very viable technique, and they ought to consider it. Barry? That's a, it's a tough dance. How do you decide? You know, when you're growing so fast, everything is working for you. And, and not only that, you know, as, as coachable as all CEOs are, not always, but the faster you're growing, the less coachable you are. Well, you're doing it great, so yeah. I don't need any coaching. I'm right. like, everything's working. I don't right. need any coaching. So, I got this. Yeah, right. And that's that becomes, it makes it harder. You need somebody, I think, outside, literally nagging at you to make sure, remember, take care of this. Remember, let's think about this as this happens. That's about being too close again. Yeah. And the issue of successorship. So I know that one of the things that you're laughing, Roger, that, uh, that uh, investors like to know is something about successorship. Why are you laughing? Well, it, I'm laughing because so many businesses achieve a level of revenue that might be 10 million or 20 million a year. And there is no middle management in yeah. that company. Right. And there's a book written that talks about the the graveyard of small business and that and it all points at that middle management that businesses grow to a level and then if they aren't creating a middle management layer they aren't going to grow beyond it they're they're just doomed to staying at the same kind of level mm -hmm. so it's giving up control for a business owner or uh, a ceo is very very difficult but it's 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 absolutely required because they don't have enough time to do everything. Well, that's part of the reason why a lot of us went into business for ourselves, right? Right. Yeah. That's exactly it. As businesses grow, I think they're still, the best CEOs know how long they can be the CEO of the company. At some point, they are either the CEO who can take it to the next level or they're not. Many people don't want to admit that, but most of the time they come around to it. But they're clearly going to add the people they need at some point to get to where they need to go. It's tricky because you're always going to have to, you're going to have to hire really the best people 
the best people all the way up and down the line because you're going to have to switch them. Somebody's going to have to go from this to this. And they're going to have to be the type of person who can handle multiple balls in the air. Hmm. Um, so philosophy on developing middle management. What are the telltale signs that it's time for a CEO to, to start looking at developing that middle man? Because you know, especially the ones that get to 10, $10 $20 million, they have the direct reports, right? They have a good VP of sales. They have a good operations person, you know, good financial person. That's what it took for them to get to the, the 10, 20 million, 25, 30, whatever. When is it the tell, when are the telltale signs that it starts, it's time to start filling in below? Very often it's turnover. You see a lot of turnover in businesses because people aren't getting promoted into a middle management kind of role. Customer feedback. If, if you wind up securing a lot of uh, contentious feedback from your customers that they're not getting support on time, they're not getting deliveries on time, you're getting some negative feedback from your customer base, it's an indication that your system isn't operating efficiently and you need to make some changes. You need to put people in place that can make decisions. Typically, if you don't have middle management, the operation slows to a crawl. Yeah, if you if you could could customer complaints be a whole bunch of other things too. Of course, it it can involve a lot of different things. But it looked looked at from fifty thousand feet, you can see there's just too high too high a level of noise coming back from the customer. And that's an indication that you're not service servicing them well. Oh, that there's some sort of leadership gap. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. You were going to say something, Eric? If, if you've read the book, The Goal, which is one of the great business books, you find that you see, if, you're, if you see the bottlenecks and take care of them, you're doing what you need to do. It's the, the companies where the bottlenecks pile up and nobody's doing anything about it that really stagnate and fall. You can see, I'm not talking about marketing. I'm not talking about big picture now. I'm talking about direct, certainly manufacturing operations. Being able to do the kind of work you have to do that you learn in business school, for example, about the critical path methodology. That's what streamlines any kind of operation. I know I'm making hand gestures that nobody can see but us, but sorry. <laughs> well, we actually we are, actually are recording today, so I do have, I do have some video. Um, philosophy on, go ahead. I was going to mention that uh, something Barry mentioned earlier, and that is, a business owner that develops a business and it gets to 10 or $20 million a year typically shouldn't be the, the head of the business at that point any longer. He should be looking to hire a truly professional executive to take over and run the business. He, he, can or, conti- she. he or she can, uh, can continue in a vital role in the business, but Typically, they're an entrepreneur. They have an entrepreneurial mindset. They're super salespeople or super technical people. They typically aren't the best business people. And so they should consider getting a senior executive in place to grow the business even further. Mm. And then what do I do? Because I don't want to leave my business yet. No, you don't want to leave the business yet. You're too Mm. critical to the business. You become a senior advisor, a directional uh, weather vane, if you will to helping the company move on to bigger and better things. But operationally, you're not running the entire operation. You can be a greater asset to the business in that way. I do think that once you get to middle market status at that point, often that issue has been resolved. So the, the 
original CEO becomes the founder. Yes. And now you have a professional CEO running it. Once you're in revenue of that size, you can have an idea guy. That's what the original person was. But you need a, someone who can really operate and really run it. Yeah, I'm not so, so sure that that happens that often. Um, the it, there are plenty of cases. I mean, it, it does, does happen, but, yeah. you know, the, at least the, the folks that I've talked talk to, you know, the anyway. Yeah. But, no, I was agreeing with you. Yeah. There are plenty of cases where people are running at the helm of a company well beyond their capability. Their capacity. Yeah. 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 Great. So just to, to, as we close the show, what's new and happening in your practices that you think the CEO listeners should be aware of and would be interested to hear? Barry? Most of what I do is in the, uh, what you would call the lower middle market. And really emerging companies who are trying to raise a million to five million dollars. There, the good news about Atlanta and some of which you talked about in that column was there seems to be a steadier flow of venture, small v capital moving into Atlanta. More and more things happening, not just from venture, but from corporate side and from different places other than the normal traditional place. One of the things I mean, my, I have a three-pronged thing that I always think about. How do you turn Atlanta into Silicon Valley or New York or Boston, besides many years? First, you have to keep senior funding local because that keeps the companies local. Mm-hmm. Secondly, you create an atmosphere of collaboration and not competition. And the third part is you get the corporations involved. And that's what those places do well, and they do 75% of all venture in this country out of those three places half of which is Silicon Valley. So I see more, a lot more action happening in Atlanta from a lot of unusual places. And I think the whole ecosystem should rise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Certainly the university system in Atlanta is a tremendous uh, generator of, of business and technology here. What I see changing is the use of debt financing in novel ways. The change in the banking system and the way that it has operated in the past has created a a problem for most small to medium-sized businesses because they can't get the funding they used to get. Mm -hmm. So there's a tremendous need to secure expert advice to construct financial instruments that get you that operating capital on the debt side rather than continually going for additional equity investment. That's a big part of what I'm wrapped into doing today. I I agree 100% with that. The one thing you learn is if you've got a good business and you know you're going to do well, equity is always more expensive than debt, always. And if you can handle debt service, you should always do that on the earlier stages. Because if you do the math, you come out eight or ten times ahead. So what are some of the new things that are happening with debt financing? Well, it's, it's, it's second-tier lenders that are providing truly effective purchase order financing that didn't exist previously, mm-hmm. novel approaches to purchase order financing, inventory financing, that sort of thing. Uh, receivables financing has been going on for years and years and years, but purchase order financing and inventory financing um, with secondary players. And I can mention just a couple of sources. There's a group in town called Now Account, which has got the, maybe I think the greatest thing for small businesses that has hit this country in years. I think what they, what they can do is spectacular. 
The other thing is something called venture debt, which you now have a couple of groups in Atlanta doing hmm. uh, that can help bridge that gap that they have to try to bridge. And there's at least one group and maybe two in town who do that. Thank you so much, uh, gentlemen, for sharing your insights on raising money in, in today's economic environment here in Atlanta. And thank you to everybody listening to CEO Exclusive today. On today's show, we had Barry Etra of The Race Forum and Roger Rake of Stratoli talking to us a little bit about venture capital funding here in Atlanta. To find out more about them, go to CEOExclusiveRadio.com. And on Thursday, we're actually going to release a blog that summarizes the key takeaways from today's show. Thank you so much for watching CEO Exclusive and have a wonderful, prosperous, productive, and very profitable week. Thank you. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at AnonaEnterprises.com.